good for us to assemble again this morning. I uh, want to thank Evan for filling in for me Wednesday night. Wednesday was not a good day for me, so I do appreciate that. I'm, I'm very happy to be here this morning. And we were in Lufkin, Texas in June and during the class, they had a, uh, a lesson that I thought would be pretty good here. thought we might could get something from it. It's, it's not something we haven't heard, but maybe put in a way which we hadn't exactly thought about. We'll get to that part of it in just a minute. Just a, a little introductory here. There's a verse that I... It, that we've talked about here before, I have anyway, but reintroduced to me uh, several years ago, in a few years, four or five years ago, and it's just kind of stuck with me ever since. It's not one that I hadn't read before, it's just that it, it struck me a little bit different. And I, I've told you about it up here, and it's this verse. It's Deuteronomy 6:24, And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. So, and I use this at the Pines not too often, but I use it at the Pines. That people don't understand in the world, and I think we do though, that, that the Lord... Whatever he wants us to do is for our good always. Not just in this life, but after this life. And, but we have to apply that for this life because we things happen. So we're not privileged to know everything about God. There's no way we could even understand it with the, the finite minds that we have. But what we can understand is that, that God wants what's best for us eternally. He wants the best for us, our good always, eternally. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So we understand that all things will work together for our good to, to those that love him, to those that love him, um, that we may not understand why something's happening. I mean, it may be a complete mystery. Is it why me? Have you ever thought those things? Why me? I like, oh, why is this? Why is this going on? Well, that's what I want us to talk about this morning. And we want to uh, talk about somebody named Hadassah. So, if you'll turn to that book, Esther. We're going to talk about Esther, and um, and probably providence. You know, we don't know exactly how God works things out. We mentioned that before. God is not specifically mentioned in this book. You know that information. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know. But He is everywhere in this book. It seems working. No miracles are mentioned in the book. 
It's just not there. There's no supernatural anything that's happening in this book. But just think about all the things that had to happen to bring about the uh, uh, God's purpose in the book of Esther. I mentioned Hadassah, but that was her other name. But we never know that name. I saw a look on a face or two like Hadassah. <laughs> uh, but but we don't. Um, many things had to happen in the story, in the events of Hadassah, Esther, that we just don't know. So if there if there are no miracles that are mentioned in the book, and we can't read of any, then how does God carry out his purpose? I mean, how does this work? Think about it. What had to happen for God's purpose to be carried out? And the answer is you and me, people. That's how God carries out his purpose today. Um, it's us. So with that all being said, I've got... 25, 27 things that basically must happen for the book of Esther to turn out the way it did. Now we understand that if it, if something of these of this list hadn't happened, it would have just happened another way. But for it to happen this way, it, this is this is what had to happen. So we want to. I want you to turn to the book of Esther. We're not going to read a lot of it, but we're going to read some of it, and we're just going to take a fast walk through the story of Esther. Ahasuerus is the king. He's also known as Xerxes number one. He's the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. They rule the world from Egypt to India on over to Macedonia in Greece. Uh, th they were the world power. And so Ahasuerus is giving a feast for his royal officials and, and his queen Vashti is giving a feast for the ladies. And so we have that scenario right there. Now, in all the things, this, this feast went on for a long time, but in the last few days, he wants Vashti to come before all of these officials and let everybody see how beautiful she was and wear her crown. She doesn't come. She doesn't come, we see in, in, in verse 12, she refuses to do that. And I read a couple of commentaries. I had not thought of this scenario before. And a possibility is, well, she didn't want to be unveiled in front of these people. But what he may have been asking her for is to come in wearing only her crown. And it's like, oh, I never thought about that. So whatever the scenario was, she's not having any of this. And so he uh, demotes her. To, uh, she'll never come in my presence again. You're out. You're not queen anymore. Another event that has to take place, we find we're introduced to a man named Mordecai. 
and we're uh, introduced to his cousin named Hadassah, and it says her also named Esther. And he must really adopt her or take her into his own home because her parents have died. Now, Esther has got to be lovely, beautiful, she's described as. She's got to be that way in chapter 2 and verse 7. So the king is going to have a contest, if you will, for the, all the beautiful women, uh, the virgins in the empire, and they're going to be brought to Shushan, Susa, the capital, and the main capital anyway, and they're going to, he's going to pick out the best one. And so she's got to be brought into the king's contest, if that's the right, a good word for it. But anyway. And so there's a man named uh, Haggai. He's uh, he was the, in charge of the the women in this contest, if you will. And she's brought into this contest, and he's got to notice her and advance her in this contest. That's going to happen. And when she, after a year, when she goes into, before the king, she has to take only what Haggai advises her to take. So that this thing is going to work out right. And so they have the contest and she comes in her place and lo and behold, Ahasuerus sees her and he's the one she's chosen, that's chosen. I guess she's the most beautiful in the land. She's chosen to be the next queen. What we forget sometimes in reading the book of Esther is that from chapter 1 until now, four years have passed. We don't think about that. Four years have passed from chapter 1 to chapter 2 when uh, Esther is chosen to be the next queen. I think during that time, if I may say, I think during that time is when Xerxes went over to Greece uh, through Turkey, today's Turkey, and into Greece to take over Greece, and he gets repelled. But anyway, whatever happened in these three plus years, uh, he's back, and he's chosen Esther to be his queen. Now. Mordecai is a good Jew. It's not, a, it's not a shocking revelation to you that Esther is Jewish. Mordecai goes to the king's gate at the palace every day. It, it, he was apparently somebody among the Jews anyway. And so he, that was his station, I guess, at the, uh, maybe not the only one, but he's there. And in the process of time, he hears two men have a plot against the king. And so he has to be in the right place at the right time, and he lets the king know indirectly. He doesn't do it himself. He lets the king know what's, go what's going to happen. And so the two men who are bringing up this plot are done, literally. Their life is done. And so Mordecai really saves the king. And Ahasuerus, the king, he has to record this about Mordecai in the official record of the, um, of the 
the nation, but yet not reward him. This all works in it works things out. And in chapter in chapter two, verse twenty, we do do find that Esther must successfully hide her nationality, her ethnicity, from them. There's another man that we're introduced to whose name is Haman. He is an Agagite. We mentioned this a few month, a couple months or so ago. He's an Agagite. He's a descendant of the Amalekites. He's apparently a descendant of Agag, the king that King Saul was supposed to kill in all of his, all the Amalekites. But he's a descendant. Guess how he feels about the Jews? You want to take a guess? Yeah, they were enemies of the Jews from way back from when the people of uh, the Hebrews were in the wilderness. Well, Haman's going to get promoted. We never heard of Haman before now, but he's promoted. He's he is number two basically to Ahasuerus. He's promoted, and as we mentioned, he hates the Jews. Mordecai knows knows Haman, but Mordecai won't bow down to him like everybody else does. He just will not do it. He refuses, and Haman hates Mordecai. And, and then as a result of that, Haman hates the Jews. And so he just decides, he has to decide to cast lots for a good time to destroy the Jews. Now, keep in mind, in the empire there are 127 satraps, uh, the people over these different areas. And so... He casts lots to decide what time of year that this needs to be done. Hmm. By the time we get to this, by the way, nine years have passed. So, so we've gone from four years to nine years. So five years when Esther, since Esther became queen, I suppose. So in the meantime, when Haman cast the lots to decide when the Jews are going to be exterminated. The lot had to fall on a late date in that year. First of all, I, it always kind of struck me as funny or peculiar that the kings like David or Solomon had to have so many horses. They wanted stalls for all of their horses. And I got to reading this and I thought, well, that's, this makes sense. All of their empire, they spoke in, in different places, different languages. So we had, they had to write letters and petitions. And all, all these towns and all these people had to go out and, send the, and, and take these letters, the proclamation, to out all the empire. So it's not going to happen overnight. They didn't have Morse code. They didn't have telephones. So it's not going to happen overnight. So, that, oh, okay, so we got at least 127 men going out in different places, it would seem spreading the news about this proclamation that the Jews are going to be destroyed on this date. Thus, the reason for all the horses. And so, turn to chapter 4 of Esther. Esther 
has to be convinced by Mordecai to put her life on the line. She's getting in dangerous territory right here. So let's read verses chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these thirty days. It's dangerous to go before the king and not be summoned because the head can be chopped off or whatever they might do. So she said, I haven't been summoned in 30 days. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about this. Look in verse 12. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Now, Esther and Mordecai are, they're, they're communicating, but we have an intermediary doing the actual talking. And Mordecai told them an answer to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I think that's some of the most salient words in scripture you're not going to escape if you don't want to help you're not going to escape if all the Jews are killed you're just not going to you're not going to live but if you remain completely silent relief and deliverance is going to come another way it's going to happen but you know you might be there at this point at this place, at this moment, for this very purpose, to save your people. So she decides she better go, since he put it to her like that, I suppose. So he, she does decide to go into the king and she asks the Jews to fast and don't eat or drink for three days, night and day, um, and, and she will go into the king. And so when she goes into Ahasuerus, he's got to uh, accept her unsummoned, the most beautiful woman in the empire. How could he turn her down? But you never can know what kind of mood somebody might be in. But So he must accept her And so she devises a plan in her mind of what she can do to help her people. Now, she doesn't immediately make a request, no. This is what I want us to do. This is what's planned. She doesn't do that yet. She doesn't do that yet. So, Haman must be unable to wait for the death of Mordecai on the gallows. He, he, he goes ahead and builds the gallows. He gets them ready because he wants to kill Mordecai. I mean, he is number two in the empire. There's nobody with any more power except the king himself. Kind of sounds like Joseph, doesn't it? 
but what a different personality. And so he has a death wish for Mordecai. And so he said, all right, we're going to build these gallows. And they're high. Everybody's going to know what happens when he's dead. So let's read Esther 6, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read this. We're going to make several points from this these few verses here. That night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity have we bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Haman is here, standing in the court, and he said to the and the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So Ahasuerus must have a sleepless night. He must have insomnia, we would say, for this all to work out like it did. He must decide to have the royal records read to him while he has insomnia. He couldn't turn on the radio or the TV. So he'll have the official records read to him. Strange request but not miraculous. The section that's read must be about Mordecai and what he did for him. What a coincidence. No, I don't think anything is coincidence. Ahasuerus must decide then to reward Mordecai. Oh. Hmm. So, Haman must appear in the king's court at the precise moment. He just walked in. What a coincidence. Ahasuerus must speak before allowing Haman to speak. Haman was going to tell him about Mordecai. Ahasuerus beat him to it about Mordecai. And um, he must be vague to allow Haman to think he's talking about him in this interpretation. Haman must misinterpret what Ahasuerus has to say and that he would be speaking speaking of honoring him, Haman. So Esther sets a trap for Haman at a banquet. So in the meantime, Haman dresses Mordecai up in fancy clothes drives him around, humiliates him really in front of everybody because he doesn't this is he thinks he deserves the, the recognition. Mordecai gets it. And 
all this plan that Esther has is about to come to pass. So they have the, the a wine uh, banquet for us one night, and then she says, "I'll come back tomorrow, and we'll have the feast." And Haman is excited. I, the, he tells his family, "The king is only asked for me to go with him into the queen's chamber for this feast," and he is he's tremendously honored and excited. Think of the honor of him second in command. He's there. He's the only other one. That's his idea. And so he goes in and they have this thing and she starts talking. And he's terrified. Literally terrified. And the king gets up angry at what she told him in this trap. And so Ahasuerus uh, Haman's begging for his life from her. Ahasuerus goes out in the garden and just happens to come back when Haman falls on her couch pleading for his life. I put my hands together. In a, but that's when he just happened to happen. Just, wow, what a coincidence. We could use that word all the time. He's in trouble. And he is executed on the gallows that were reserved for Haman. His own gallows. He had made. Uh, he had re uh, reserved for Mordecai. So Haman is hanged on his own gallows. Alright, so now we've got a... The, the proclamation has gone out that the, that the Jews are going to be extinct on a certain day. We're going to... We're, we're, uh, they're going to kill them. They're going to take up arms against us. Can't countermand the order. Okay, we'll just write another order. We're going to write one about what can happen. He accepts her plea, and then Esther and Mordecai get to write a new petition, a new edict, that's going to work along with the one that they're trying to counter, counteract. And so it's that it's spread out all over the empire, just as the other proclamation was. I'm skipping a lot of stuff. Hope you don't mind. So they get to write the petition, and it's going to be sealed with the king's seal. Guess who has the seal? Mordecai. He has a ring with that seal on it. And so this is going to be official. The Jews must be allowed to fight back. If they can't fight back, then none of this matters. You can't stop what's going to happen. But we'll just, okay, okay, we'll just let them fight back. This, this will take care of it. It actually does. And the thing about the late date, the early date in the years when this first proclamation was sent out, and it's the late date that all this is going to happen. So all this in between had to, had to, had to come to pass. Well, when the time comes, the Jews fight back, not for one day, but for two. And 75,000 of the enemies of the Jews are killed all over the empire. 500 or more in 
the, the capital city, the main capital alone, 500 or more. But 75,000 enemies are killed, and the Jews are not exterminated. The Jews decided, okay, we will, we're going to make a celebration, a feast, in which we're going to remember our deliverance from, I'll use the word extinction, but another way, they would have been saved another way. But anyway, I, and so the, it was called the Feast of Purim. Purim. The Jews to this day celebrate that, even now. How long ago? 2,500 years later, they still celebrate the Feast of Purim for remembering their deliverance from their enemies in the Persian Empire. They still remember that. That's pretty cool. What does that say about Scripture? That puts a, another lock to it, doesn't it? Still celebrating something that happened 2,500 years ago, let's say. God is not mentioned in Esther, but God's everywhere in it. No miracles were ever done, but he's everywhere. It may be I'll just read that. Who knows whether or not we might be in the right place at the right moment to help somebody learn something about the Lord. Who knows? Could be in the grocery store. Could be in the pharmacy. Could be in Walmart, which is a grocery store too. Could be anywhere, hunting and fishing. We could be in the right spot, and there's somebody looking. What are we going to do? What opportunity will we seize? We might be the best opportunity they ever had to learn the truth. Ever. From somebody that knows what the Lord wants. That knows the truth about what the Lord wants. They hear all this other stuff. But knowing the truth. There was a guy at the Pines one time. He, he said something to the effect that and I'm glad y'all are here. And I said something to him, sort of like, and I don't remember exactly. He said, who knows whether God didn't put you here for us or put us here for you? So who knows? I hadn't really thought about it until he said that. And I thought, who knows what opportunities we have? Are we going to take those opportunities? Show what the Lord can do for us. He's calling us. We're going to sing God is calling the prodigal here in just a moment. Number 278. He's calling all of us to him because he wants what's best for us and always has. For our good always. Let's be a good influence. If you need to be baptized, have your sins washed away. You can do that now. Or if you need the 
prayers about some matter in your life, if you've already done the, the baptism, and why don't you come while we stand and sing?